This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Yeah, so <laughs> welcome back, Felicity. You've been gone for quite a while now. Yeah, it's been a month. I've been in Europe and it's been amazing. Um, so what was Switzerland like? Yeah, so it was basically nerd camp, but with more mountains. Um, and there was a heat wave, so I had to go swimming a lot, which was oh, tragic. You, <laughs> yeah, you poor thing. It sounds really, really hard for you um, in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, just drinking lots of Swiss wine is dreadful. Um <laughs> Yeah, so sorry to drag you back here um, to the office, but anyway, um, I was hoping you could share with us what your favourite thing was at the conference. So I met the scientist in Lausanne, Professor Francesco Stellacci, who was trying to invent a nanoparticle treatment for all viruses. Wow, so that sounds terribly exciting. (laughs) Uh, It also sounds really impossible to me, but... How far along is he in this research? He did kind of acknowledge it was a little bit of a wacky idea. Um, and he's done, sort of at this stage, he's, he's still doing it in mice. Um, but basically how it works is that he's got this nanoparticle that will attach to a whole lot of different types of viruses. Um, and using hydrophobic forces, uh, it'll break the virus apart, which means that um, it's very hard for the virus to put itself back together and to attack your body. Yeah, I'm actually really taken with this idea, but it just sounds too good to be true. I feel like it's a line out of a movie where, you know, the scientist creates, usually for evil, but like the nanoparticle that can infect the whole world with every virus. Obviously, he's trying to do the opposite here. Yeah, it does seem pretty far-fetched, but we got to visit his lab at EPFL in Lausanne in Switzerland. Um, He was showing us that he's um, had some of his research published in Nature Materials, so it's got a little bit of weight to it. Uh, Nature clearly thinks it's worth publishing. Um, And he's tested quite a few viruses so far, so he's done Zika, HPV, Dengue, and some strains of influenza, which I thought was really exciting, not all strains. And... He was really sad because it doesn't work in rotavirus, which was his aim, was to make it work in rotavirus. Professor Stellacci said it was really just a proof of concept, and if it ever really gets to human trials, the design is going to evolve and change um, and look quite a bit different. He's got another big paper in the works, um, but I'm going to hold off writing a proper news story about this research until... Uh, that paper gets published later this year. Yeah, well, I can kind of see why. I definitely want to read that paper. Back here in Sydney, I definitely haven't been swimming in Sydney Harbour or doing anything as exciting as you have, Felicity. Uh, But I have seen a couple of interesting stories uh, across our news desk. Yeah, so there's these researchers at Curtin Uni and they've basically managed to invent an AI system, so it's on a smartphone. So it analyzes the sound of a child's cough and it can diagnose uh, asthma, pneumonia, croup, bronchitis and upper and lower respiratory tract disorders. You're probably wondering how it works. That is so useful because, you know, it's really hard to diagnose children's diseases based on just listening to their lungs it's hard to know what's going on so awesome exactly and the best thing about this and why it caught our eye is that it's actually in the study been very effective so asthma was the most accurate and the diagnosis from this ai app was up to 90 percent effective and this was pretty good considering that uh they also had the same data reviewed by a panel of uh, I think it was four or five uh, pediatricians and yeah the diagnosis was pretty spot on across both systems. That's amazing how does it work? 
So the most interesting part is probably that it is a consumer-facing product. So this would be something that a parent could download on their phone, hypothetically, and they hold the phone. This was tested on an iPhone 6, I believe. And so they hold it about a hand's distance from a child's mouth on an angle so that none of the spittle from the child's mouth interrupts the recording or kind of goes on the microphone. The child would cough and then they can also input a little bit of data. So we'll ask like maybe four simple questions to the parent. And then from that, it can generate a diagnosis. Wow, that's awesome. And why does it work? Yeah, so it um, basically comes up this whole idea that different uh, respiratory diseases have certain sound signatures. And these researchers knew that there was a lot of promise in AI voice recognition technology like Siri, um, Google Home, etc., Alexa, all of that. And so they thought, why not join those two together? So they basically recorded the clinical sounds of coughs of children in a certain age group Um, hundreds and hundreds of them and then they basically taught the system to to learn which was which Um, and of course they knew what respiratory condition it was and they got the app to learn that wow that's so interesting wouldn't it be weird if you were sitting at home and coughing and then your um alexa or Google Home just starts diagnosing you. Yeah, and <laughs> I think you should go to the doctor. <laughs> you seem to have asthma. <laughs> yeah, because Alexa isn't already creepy enough. They just have to kind of keep adding to how much it knows about your life. Oh, and uh, I saw that the researchers are commercializing this technology, which is always quite good to see because it's hard to take it from lab to market. Um, but we should probably add that the researchers are actually scientific advisors and shareholders in ResApp Health, which is the company that's commercialising the tech out of the University of Queensland. So there's a few competing interests. Yes, of course. Okay, cool. So now it's time for our hot topic from Dr. Brad McKay, AGP based in Sydney. I first got into medicinal cannabis about three years ago when one of my patients was needing to have some chemotherapy and he'd had it before, it was a recurrent cancer, and he knew exactly what he was in for. He was going to be vomiting up his guts for months on end. So uh, he asked if I could prescribe medicinal cannabis for him and it had just become legal for doctors to be able to prescribe it. So I looked into it at the time and found that Uh, Doctors could prescribe it, but there are a few caveats involved. So one of the caveats was that uh, his specialists needed to be on par with it. They needed to be on board. And what he found was that his specialist just said, yeah, if you want to try it, go for it. I don't know much about it, but if you want to take it, yeah, do it. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> which didn't really provide much, uh, much opportunity for them to want to prescribe it. So it really fell back on me. Um, then I was told um, by the powers that be that, uh, that as a lowly GP, um, it really wasn't my position to be prescribing cannabis. So I could prescribe it, but then I wasn't encouraged to prescribe it. So we've gone on a bit of a long journey. Um, there, we're now in a situation where prescribing cannabis is still very difficult uh, across the board. Every state has slightly different laws, and this creates a lot of confusion and a lot of paperwork that GPs really don't want to do. 
Uh, and when I when I have somebody coming in to see me, uh, I sort of go, yay, this could actually be of benefit for you. Like you or ticking all the boxes, we could find that this is really good for you and you could feel a lot better on medicinal cannabis. But then on the other side of things, I sigh because I know that there's going to be lots of paperwork and lots of computer work and lots of organization that goes on in the background to actually get this across the line. So recently there's been a massive backlash to the medical board's proposal to regulate doctors who practice alternative and complementary medicine. And Felicity's worked on this quite a bit. And can you share with us what you found out, Felicity? Yeah, so the medical board's crackdown, um, which we're in the office jokingly calling a crackdown, <laughs> is um, it's just in the proposal stage right now. Uh, So what the board wants to do is to regulate the kinds of doctors who treat things like Lyme disease with intravenous antibiotics um, or doctors who try stem cell therapies, um, which are emerging or experimental treatments, that kind of thing. But interestingly, the proposed guidelines also apply to integrative medical practitioners. So these are the doctors that don't just do traditional Western medicine. They also prescribe complementary and alternative medicine so that's things like vitamins minerals homeopathy herbs hypnosis meditation yoga acupuncture all that wellness stuff so these doctors have been around since the 80s and 90s so they're nothing new um and what was really interesting about these proposed guidelines was the community response um so the community really didn't like the crackdown um, and the medical board's inbox has never been so full. So as of mid-June, the board had received about 8,000 emails from patients who were really worried that their favourite doctor was going to be deregistered or struck off um, for practising complementary medicine. But that's not at all what the medical board was trying to do, was it? Exactly. So it seems like there's been a communication problem or just a scare campaign. Something's gone on. Um, What the medical board has done is come up with some draft guidelines with some pretty basic principles of best practice that cover doctors who practice unusual forms of medicine. So if you read the guidelines, it's stuff like don't lie to your patients about whether the treatment works, don't rip them off, make sure you don't prescribe them herbs when they've got a gangrenous leg, things oh, like that. Yeah, well, you <laughs> really hope not. I think you're in the wrong place. So it's some pretty basic consumer protection. And the board was very clear when I spoke to them, they really don't want to ban certain types of treatments. They just want to make sure that patients know when they're being offered something that isn't conventional. Um So why was the reaction so intense? Were there any vitamin companies kind of pushing this consumer reaction agenda by any chance? Well, interesting that you said that Blackmore's actually put out a letter saying that this regulation was draconian. Not surprised. Um, Which, I mean, that's in their interest to say that. Uh, And the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association formally asked the medical board to drop the proposal. Um... So it seems like the medical board's message didn't really get through. So it's quite interesting. Often there's a call to regulate areas of medicine, medical practice. Why should we or should we not be regulating integrative doctors in this case? So it appears that there are two types of integrative doctors. There are those that recommend potentially quite dangerous treatments like intravenous vitamin C or chelation therapy, so that's the removal of heavy metals from the blood, which can be quite an extreme process. Um, 
And I even found one GP who wrote on their website that sunscreen gives you cancer and that you should use green tea skin products instead. Can I just say right now, I have some of the palest skin in Australia. I would be in a burn suit in emergency during the summer if I rubbed green tea on my skin. Yeah, so just to be clear, sunscreen doesn't give you cancer. It actually protects you from deadly melanomas. I know because I emailed the Cancer Council and asked them whether or not uh, this was an appropriate thing for a GP to post on my website. And I spoke to a family member of a man who died of prostate cancer who was advised by an integrative doctor not to go to an oncologist. Um, And that family was incredibly upset uh, by that advice. But then there's this other group of integrative doctors who mainly treat chronically ill patients who've tried everything else. And this is sort of the option of last resort. Um, And what they do is they'll sit down with a patient who's got chronic pain or fibromyalgia or irritable bowel syndrome, and they'll go through what the patient's diet comprises of, what environment they're living in, checking for food intolerances, allergies, um, and they'll do what they call a holistic assessment of the patient. And then maybe recommend some magnesium, fish tablets, vitamins, um, and get them to cut out some things from their diet. So it seems pretty harmless. Um, and these doctors follow the association's guidelines, which say don't avoid using conventional medicine in emergency situations and when it's appropriate. Um, and they also say it's important to, to consider the evidence behind the treatments that you're providing. I spoke to a few of these doctors and they were fairly consistent in the kinds of clinical work and investigations that they do, which was comforting. It seems like they have a system and that they all follow the same approach. Um, And this is talking about that second group of doctors that avoid really dangerous treatments. Um, The only red flag that I came across was the use of the controversial IgG test for food intolerance, which uh, the leading allergy body ASEA says uh, is unorthodox and doesn't work. So it's it's this inclusion of um, some things that seem really sensible and logical and straightforward in terms of medicine and then other things that are really on the fringe. Um, but it seems like there is a consumer demand for this kind of service. Uh, so I guess as long as they're not causing a huge amount of harm, don't have a massive problem with it. Mm. Um, and I did speak with one patient with an inflammatory bowel condition called ulcerative colitis, who said his integrative doctor gave him his life back. So for years, uh, this patient was passing blood when he went to the toilet. Um, it could be up to 12 times a day. His symptoms um, included extreme anemia, constant stomach cramps, fatigue, depression, aching joints, um, and he was unable to exercise. Um, and then this integrative doctor did a few tests and recommended that he avoid walnuts, shellfish, gluten, pork, chicken, most grains, dairy and eggs, uh, which he did. Um, and then he went into remission since then. Um, when he went back to his gastroenterologist, um, the doctor just dismissed this new treatment plan in about 10 seconds um, and had no time for it. And so this patient said that the integrative medicine approach was really useful and that traditional medicine practitioners weren't interested in it, uh, even though it was effective. So where does that leave us? Well, I think this type of general practice can be done ethically. Uh, But honestly, if it were really great medicine to prescribe herbs and minerals, it would just be called medicine rather than complementary medicine. Um, So, I mean, at least they aren't anti-vax. I ask them they're not which is great. Um, I would probably give it a go if I had chronic pain or fibromyalgia because you would try anything. It is very true. And when you have something chronic, you really have nothing to lose. So yeah, you would definitely explore all avenues. But 
Again, whether people should be forced to pay for things that maybe aren't evidence-based, that's a whole other ethical can of worms. And yeah, we could talk about this for hours. So let's leave it there. Yeah. Now some words from the London Times, 1834. Dr. John Forbes has this to say about the new French invention, the stethoscope. That it will ever come into general use, notwithstanding its value, is extremely doubtful, because its beneficial application requires much time and gives a good bit of trouble, both to the patient and to the practitioner, because its hue and character are foreign and opposed to all our habits and associations. It must be confessed that there is something even ludicrous about the picture of a grave physician formally listening through a long tube applied to the patient's thorax as if the disease were within a living being that could communicate its conditions to the sense without. So that's what Dr. John Forbes wrote about the stethoscope in 1834, and it seemed like he was very doubtful of it. He didn't really have a lot of nice things to say. But subsequent improvements to the design in following years helped the stethoscope to become emblematic to the profession. However, doctors were still facing difficulties in mastering the instrument. Even at a conference that I was at a few months ago, these tech developers were talking about how back when the stethoscope was invented and the following years afterwards, it became so emblematic of the profession that even if doctors didn't know how to use the device or even have the acoustic knowledge to know what they were listening for through the device, they would still wear it around hospitals and around towns um, so that people knew that they were a doctor. It became like the it item. That's really sweet. (laughs) Okay, last thing is our podcast feedback. I'm glad you asked, Felicity, while you're away. We got a lovely bit of feedback uh, from Cansman76 with a little Australian flag emoji after his username. And he wanted to let us know that we are dull millennials and says (laughs) that while we talk about some interesting topics... We do it in a trite and lazy fashion. And as someone said in the office earlier, uh, that means that we've made it because we've got our first bit of negative feedback. So congratulations, Francine. Thanks, everyone, for supporting us. Yeah, it's been a long ride. It has been. And I think, thank you, Cansman76. We're going to print it out and frame it in the office. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we're back. And I've been looking into the question of why we've been having so many problems with lots of medical devices in Australia. Is there a problem with the regulation? What's going on? Can't wait to hear that one, Felicity. Catch you next week.